Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Christian Church again, and uh, welcome to everybody here in the West Auditorium, everybody worshiping in the East, our friends in Lovington, and everybody online. I'm very glad you're with us. We're going to spend some time in Scripture. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 7, if we will, please. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 is where we're going to look. Maybe you've got a smartphone. If you're with us online, there's a tab online that you can find Daniel 7. Let me introduce myself for those who have not had a chance to meet. My name is Wayne, and I'm part of the pastoral team. And looking forward to spending some time in Scripture with you today. As we begin, I'd like to draw your attention to um, a painting that has always captured me. It's uh, from the early 19th century. Of, it's the, the, the name of the painting is Echo Homo. It's by Antonio Cesare. He's an Italian painter. We've looked at it in detail in the past, particularly on a Good Friday uh, service and the focus of the uh, painting is the fellow you can't, whose face you can't see in the painting. Um, that fellow is Pontius Pilate. And if you're familiar with scripture, you know that he is the Roman governor of Judea. He's saying, Eke Homo, here, here is the man you've been asking for, referring to Jesus. This is a, just a brief time before Jesus is executed. He knew of Jesus' innocence and yet allowed him to be killed by the crowd's chaotic plot down below the balcony. Uh, what's interesting about the painting is you can't see his face. Here he is, we know him from scripture, he's in a lot of creeds, and yet um, uh, the painter, the, the artist, wanted to make him somewhat anonymous, if you will. Even Jesus isn't, the, isn't seen all that clearly. Who do you see most clearly? Uh, Pilate's wife, she's the one who said, are you sure we should be doing this? And um, Historians don't really know a lot about this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. There are some records that would indicate that he was in charge of Judea or and Jerusalem for more than a decade, right during the time of Jesus' ministry. Um, they think that maybe he was a fairly um, proficient bureaucrat because Rome would normally not allow someone to stay in a position for as many years as he was in Jerusalem. He was there for well over a decade, so normally they'd, somebody would go in and they'd come out and they'd be constantly putting new people in, trying to quell the riots. And for some reason or other, Pilate was able to maintain control over Jerusalem and Judea for a longer period of time. Israeli archaeologists have recently figured out that he was, in fact, a fairly proficient um, bureaucrat because a sewage leak in, in Jerusalem about 15 years ago revealed some of his work. Take a look at this video of what they discovered Pontius, excuse me, what Pontius Pilate was doing. They call it the biblical superhighway, the pilgrim's path that led to the Jewish temple in ancient times. For Jews in ancient days, their pilgrimage began here at the Pool of Siloam. It's a mikveh or ritual bath. It's the size of two Olympic swimming pools. They would purify themselves here before going up to the Temple Mount to worship God. The pool is also where Jesus healed the blind man as recounted in the book of John. Its location was hidden by a road until 15 years ago when a sewage leak led to excavations, the discovery of the pool, and much more. These are the stones that Jesus would have walked on on his way up to the temple. And now the significance of the excavation of the pilgrimage road is that for the first time in 2,000 years, visitors will be able to walk all the way from the Pool of Siloam up to the Western Wall. 
According to the Israel Antiquities Authority, the road took 10 years to build, from 20 to 30 AD, and was constructed by Pontius Pilate. Along the route, you can see many places where the road remains intact and others where it's destroyed given its violent history. We know that the Romans, they destroyed Jerusalem. And if you would find everything perfectly intact, well, it wouldn't seem like much of a destruction. Among the discovered treasures are small coins minted during the Great Jewish Revolt before the Romans destroyed the temple and Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jews of Jerusalem understood that the Romans were likely going to destroy the city. Hmm. But they also believed that one day in the future, their descendants would return and find these coins, and they would know what their ancestors lived and died for, for a free Jerusalem. And here we are nearly 2,000 years later, standing along the very same pilgrimage road here in the city of David, in Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish state of Israel. So you're probably thinking, well, that's cool, but why, are we, why do we watch that in church today? Why that story? Well, it points to a major aspect of today's sermon, and I want to say, okay, we're headed, in terms of where we're going this morning, we're headed to figure out why, that's, why that video was in today's sermon, why Pontius Pilate, but let me back up a little bit and give you some background to how we're going to answer that question. We are at the end of our, the Old Testament portion of our walk through the Bible. We've been going through the Bible in 13 weeks, and next week... Uh, we step into the beginning of Jesus' life and ministry and the rest of the New Testament. So today we end the Old Testament. And parents, by the way, if you have children four years old through anybody else in first, first kids, like fifth grade, when they leave worship today, they should be leaving with a card that's going to explain what's happening in their program and in their worship next week. So look for that card because at the end of the service next week, uh, we're going to be having them in the room with us and, and also in the East Auditorium. So be mindful that that's coming, if you will, please. If they don't come home with a card, say, where's the card? And figure it, we want you to be aware of that, okay? And so that's next week. But before we get to uh, the New Testament of next week, let's... Um, figure out how the Old Testament ends and see what God might say to us in what happened in the days just before Jesus arrived. See, in the past few weeks, we've been reviewing the days of chaos in the Jewish, Jewish nation in the years between 722 and 586 BC. So here's, if you've not been with us, here's the, here's the brief story. A thousand years before Jesus was born, Israel was the economic, the political, the military powerhouse of the world, the known world at the time. And um, that was great, except their wealth and their military and their, just their powerhouse approach caused them to stop living the way in which God wanted them to live. And their national ethos shifted, their spirituality shifted, and as they didn't live as God wanted them to live, thus his protections and his blessings were taken away from them, or if they put, a better way to put it is they walked away from it. And as history happens, nations rise and fall. And so as the, as the Israelites began to fall, the Assyrians came along and they became powerful. In 722, they actually invaded northern Israel and obliterated the population. Literally, the people of that area of the world disappeared. 140 years later, the Assyrians are dying off, the Babylonians are coming up, and they come along and they actually um, take over the southern part of the nation known as the people of Judah. And many of those people were forced marched into slavery some 1,600 miles away in Babylon. 
And basically, we can say this, that once the Babylonians showed up in 586 BCE, we can say in general that that's the point where the end of the royal Jewish throne and Jewish life, it more or less, generally speaking, there were a few good days, but for the most part, the Jewish nation as we know it in the Old Testament disappeared. Um, and the nation never really recovered. It never got back to the strength. It, never, it was never a nation that didn't live under the oppression of somebody else until 1947, when modern-day Israel, contemporary Israel, was established um, in the Middle East. So while we say that, okay, from 586 onward, Israel basically disappeared, there were some decent days um, at the end of the Old Testament. We get to 444 BC, as you can see on the timeline, um, is really the last thing that we have in the Old Testament that says anything about Israel. At that point, Nehemiah, a Jewish royal slave, is sent back to, to the, by the throne uh, to go back to Jerusalem and find out what's going on. And, you know, his family's been living as exiles for years, but now as a royal slave, he goes back to Jerusalem. And while he's there in 444 BC and the years around that, he has these major construction and rebuilding project. And um, it's a story we've examined in the past. We will again in the future. But for our time today, to today, what I want you to understand is the Old Testament timeline, as seen in our Protestant Bibles, it basically comes to an end in 444 BC, 400 years before Jesus comes along. And then there's nothing. There's nothing from then, 400 years, until Jesus shows up. So that, that raises the question. What took place during those 400 years? Why, why does, does the Bible go silent? Biblical scholars do refer to that 400 year period as a period of silence, but it's, I would sit, contend that's really a misnomer. Um, it's true, no scripture was written during that period. However, the Bible does indicate what God was doing. And we're gonna read at a period five, 600 years before Jesus was born as the writer Daniel describes what's gonna happen in those 400 years. All right, so it's, it's complicated, you with me? The Old Testament ends at 444 BC, but prior to that, 586, somewhere around that area, era, pardon me, Daniel is writing what's gonna happen until Jesus arrives. And so if you'll read with me Daniel chapter seven, beginning at verse one, some very, very strange language fantastical language that you wonder, how did this end up in the Bible and what on earth does it mean? If those questions race through your mind, then you're not alone. Read with me. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in his bed. He's a royal slave. He's actually in the, in, in the, the king's court, but he's a Jewish man. He's a slave. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there were before me the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. And four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. And we're gonna read about these four different strange looking animals that he has this dream about. And we'll see what it says. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off. It was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there, so you've got a lion. Then here's the second beast. It looks like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs and in its mouth between its teeth, it was told, get up and fill, eat your fill of flesh. And then comes along the next one, which is gonna be a leopard. After that, I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. 
On its back it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads and was given authority to rule. I mean, this thing looks like a leopard with four heads and, I mean, and, four, and wings. These are crazy looking animals, right? After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there was before me a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. And he doesn't even say what it doesn't, this beast is so weird, it doesn't look like an animal, a, a leopard, it doesn't look like a lion, it doesn't look like a bear. He has no language to describe it other than to say it has large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot what was left. It was different from all the other beasts and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there was before me another horn, a little one, which came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that spoke boastfully as I looked. Thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Talk about God here. His clothing, you want to know what God might look like? Perhaps his clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, a river of fire was flowing coming out from before him. And thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. There's going to be a judgment. And I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. By this time, the other beasts have been stripped of their authority, but they're allowed to live for a period of time. And then in my vision at night, verse 13 and 14 is perhaps very hopeful. I looked and there before me, was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, five to 600 years before Jesus is born, Daniel is writing this, and it details Jesus' arrival and eventual rule. Because do you see what, says there, what it says in verse 14 again? Look again. He, he's writing about Jesus. Jesus was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I mean, you can read between the lines on that one pretty easily and say, okay, that's Jesus fairly easy to understand of all the 14 verses. That's the easiest to get to. But what's with these other four beasts and what are they all about? Well, I've got a friend here today who's going to help us with this answer. And a sidebar, if I may. You recall that some months ago, our congregation undertook responsibility for a ministry called Disciple Heritage Fellowship. DHF is a group of, a network of churches. We have 70 to 80 churches across the nation that are, you could say, a part of our tribe. And um, we agreed to lead that group and, if you will, to bring that ministry in-house here to First Christian Church. And that was to begin in January of 2018. So out, throughout the last 18 months, Leslie and I have been on the road a lot. You're aware of that. Uh, trying to figure out how do we best manage this as a congregation. And we've visited visited many of those churches. And along the way, after lots of prayer, uh, the board of DHF and the board of our congregation determined that the best move to help these congregations thrive was to have somebody on staff here full-time working with us, specifically assigned to that responsibility. So uh, Rick Grace, a longtime friend of mine, has become 
um, part of our staff here and comes to fill that role in ministry. And I know that many of you not, have not had the opportunity to meet Rick and Nancy yet. So you would, would you welcome Rick and Nancy to the church today? And these guys come to us with, with a long, long history of life together, don't we? Yes, we're gonna boss. Do the, we're gonna, boss, no, we aren't doing the boss thing, but nonetheless. Uh, they, they've, they've got a long history. So you guys have already, we already sent them on one road trip, which was about three weeks long. Mm-hmm. And how many miles did you do? Uh, about 3,200 if you don't count. That's only in the car. That doesn't count airfare. Or airtime, air yeah. Yeah, about 4,000 miles probably. Well, well, I'm glad you're doing that. I'm really glad you're doing <laughs> that. You. And that's Thank really you. gonna be their responsibility. Here's our understanding, that if we want churches to thrive um, and to do well across this network, and if we're gonna lead the charge in that, one of the primary ways we can do that is to make certain that leaders in those churches and pastors and pastor spouses in those churches are healthy. So. Um, Rick has a long history in teaching biblical history, but together they've done a lot of marriage seminars across the country over the years. So we're asking them to go and particularly focus on the health of the homes of the people who are leading those churches. And from that, then we'll help those churches thrive. So we're very glad they're both with us. And I'm really glad that Rick's here today so he can explain the crazy language of uh, Daniel (laughs) chapter seven. Come on over here by all means, please. So... Rick, what can you tell us about these four beasts? You've got a bear, you've got a lion, you've got um, a leopard, and then something with teeth, iron teeth. So give us, give us your, your, your two minutes worth of that whole passage. Well, first off, let me say thank you for giving me such an easy portion of scripture to have to deal with. It's generally been understood that those four animals characterize four separate kingdoms. So he starts with a lion. Okay, and in all probability, that is the current Babylonian kingdom of which um, the biblical writer Daniel now finds himself. But it is, it, it's been in power for quite some time, and it's really now on the downhill slide. As a matter of fact, then when you lead into the leopard, the second of the characters, or second of the beasts, the assumption is that is the Medo-Persian so kingdom. So he's writing, and he really doesn't want to name, he doesn't want to name, <laughs> hey, the, where, you guys that are my bosses, you guys that are my owners, you're on the downhill slide, but, so it just doesn't say it. Uh, it it's the same, it, same language as, as John in the Revelation, where he can't predict the fall of the Roman Empire because he's part of it and there would be a price to pay. So Daniel has to use the coded language of this, right. of, 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 of the lion, that then gives way to the leopard, which is the, or the bear, which is the second of the animals. And again, it's assumed that is the Medo-Persian kingdom. Now, in some ways, the Medo-Persians were a little bit more amenable to allowing uh, the, the nations that it conquered to celebrate their own forms of religiosity. Um, and it, it's in one of those magnificent portions of scripture tacked away in, in Isaiah 28. It's one of the few times in scripture where God names a character centuries in advance that is going to help the Jewish people. And he names Cyrus, right. the Medo-Persian, who allows then Nehemiah to head back uh, to establish the, the, the rebuilding of the wall. But God actually names him three centuries before he happens. So he's, he's naming it out for, for that 444 BC yes. moment. Yeah centuries beforehand. It was actually named in the 8th century BC. All right, there you go. It's masterful. You get to the third kingdom, and the third kingdom then is, is the leopard. And the assumption has always been that the leopard then is the, the Greek kingdom. Now, there's two characters that I want to call attention to. Um, some of you may have heard, if you, if you stayed awake during history class... They didn't. They didn't. 
Now, some of us nerds found, uh, found history to be exciting. <laughs> yes, I have a kindred. <laughs> okay. A gentleman named Philip of Macedon was the first one that then began to challenge the Medo-Persian kingdom in what is now Europe. Okay. And when you're a big guy like that and you can assert your own power, then you get to name cities after yourself. So Philip established a city that would be the key city in Macedonia and he named it after himself and it's called Philippi, Philippi, the biblical city. Paul visits there and we're told in scripture that it's a leading city in, in, in the Macedonian region. But Philip's son was a, a, a little-known guy. Back, that's where we get Philippians from. That's where we get Philippians, absolutely. Right. So at this point, the Greeks are in charge. The Greeks are in charge. They really solidify that charge under Philip's son, a little-known guy by the name of Alexander the Great. Yeah. <laughs> a little-known guy. Well, one of the things that Alexander does when he conquers the known world at that time is that he establishes Koine, or common Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, as the language of both commerce and diplomacy. And literally, it was the first time in all of history since the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 that you could go anywhere in the world and speak one language. You'd, so when, when the early church then comes up a few centuries later, all the missionaries, the Apostle Paul and all the, the rest of the apostolic band could go anywhere in the world and they did not need an interpreter as long as they could speak Koine Greek. Really kind of fascinating. So then you get to the fourth kingdom, the one that's not even named, right, the, given one the, iron teeth. the one with the iron teeth. And the assumption has always been that that is the Roman Empire, okay, because of the way it would crush its opposition. Well, I want you to think just for a second. The ancient Roman world, the Roman Empire, was about 2,000 miles north to south and 3,000 miles east to west. That is roughly the same land mass as the United States. Can you imagine governing a landmass that size when in order to get a command from one end of the government or one end of the empire to the other would take you, in some cases, three to six months to get there? Because you can only travel 40 to 100 miles a day and you've got 3,000 miles to go. So in order for Rome to maintain something that they prided themselves in, they call it the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome, they established a road system so they could quickly move their army wherever they needed it to go. So before, centuries before Jesus was even born, God set the stage for a common language throughout the world and a road system then protected by the Roman Empire where you could travel anywhere in the world in relative safely. The video, Pontius Pilate, you can see he's a good Roman, because what did he do? He built a road, and that's what Romans did. And both of those two things, even centuries before Jesus was born, set the stage for the early church to be able to spread the gospel with one language and through a very dedicated road system. Isn't that cool? Thank Rick for all his work, appreciate it. Thank you. So, what, that, what, what you have then is, as Greek is a common language and, and that everybody can speak, and with the road system to get everybody around, you have within, within Jesus comes along, he is born at the exact right moment so that all that stuff is in play so that as his ministry comes into power, or comes into play, if you will, um, he, 
He dies, he resurrects, and the church is ready to spread, and they've got the way to do it. In other words, Jesus shows up at exactly the right moment. Because within just a few years of Jesus' death, that language and those roads helped Christianity move from some small Jewish backwater sect, if you will, to being the primary religion of the day. And by the time you get to 325, 300 years after Jesus' birth and ministry, 325, even the Roman emperor, Constantine, says, I'm converting to Christianity and I'm declaring my empire to be Christian. And Christianity becomes a historical Pardon me, the, the dominant force in the historical timeline from then on. Now I know we've got the Crusades, we've got all kinds of crazy stuff along the way, but from the perspective of what Daniel is saying, he's saying we've got these four kingdoms, and then Jesus comes, he's saying the four kingdoms are working everything out from 444 onwards until Jesus comes along. In other words, despite the lack of so-called biblical literature after 444 BCE, God's apparent silence does not mean that God has stopped moving. You know, God's pushing his finger on history constantly, saying, we've got an end in mind. Remember we said when we started this, Genesis is when all is well and peaceful, and we're going to get to Revelation where all is peaceful again, and that God is pushing history forward through all of that to say, where to get, get to the place where we're going to see that all is well and peaceful again. And in Daniel 7, we see how that plays out for those 400 years. See, who are we kidding? There are times when we think that silence means God has left us. But silence is not an indication that God has become inactive in any way. And that's an important lesson for us. But, you know, I know how this plays out in your life and my life. You've got something, you want to bring it to God, and you want to say, hey, what's going on with this? And then there's nothing there. May I tell you, friends, that is not the case. When you've got a matter going on in your life and you go, how am I going to manage this? And you go, God, and then nothing happens? How, did, how does that play out for you? I'd like to invite you to think about silence in your own lives when it comes to prayer. I'd like you to think about it this way. So friends, as you're listening to this sermon online today, I need you to be aware that when I preached this sermon, uh, the rest of the sermon was silent. And we are aware that silence on a podcast or silence online does not work when you're listening by a phone or your computer or, or however you might listen. So we've edited it, or what you're about to hear, if you will, is an edit to what actually took place in the worship services. I preached this sermon here in October of 2019. We've been talking about silence in the scriptures and how God is not really silence. And in an effort to illustrate that, we tried something that we'd never done before, and that is I didn't preach. I didn't preach for the last, at least with my voice and with my words. What we had were some white, stiff cardboard-like cards that were about three foot by three foot, 29 of them. And if you want to see what it looks like, I'd suggest you check out the church's website, firstdecator.org. Look under the sermons and off the shelf for the sermon dated October 20th. And so every 10 seconds or so, I held up a card that the congregation could see. And so in order for you to understand the rest of the sermon, which 
as it was presented with silence, I'm going to tell you what the 29 cards actually read, how they were, what were the, the statement that was written on them, and give a pause in between each statement. So as I came to the end of what I was speaking about with my language or my voice, I said that we fear the silence, yet scripture and history shows that God is working for a specific end, even in the silence. And uh, I asked, how does that work out in your life? And the first card I held up said, simply said, silence. Then the next card said, silence is God, they say, whoever they might be. But 400 years of silence? Okay. Yeah. So, so the first card I said, the first card I held, uh, let me give you a couple minute, couple of seconds of, so the first card I held up said silence. The next card then said, silence is golden, they say, whoever they might be. But 400 years of silence? God not saying anything for 400 years? Are you kidding me? What if the silence is for a shorter period of time? What do you do when heaven's floor seems like brass, have the floor of heaven, and your prayers go up, but they just get reflected back, never getting through? Only silence. Silence for 400 days, 400 weeks, 400 years. You've prayed, fasted, begged, but there's nothing but silence. You wonder, is there really a God? And if so, is God even listening? You wonder because the silence breeds fear. Hope is hidden. Silence is uncomfortable cutting the noise of our busy lives. Yet, Scripture says, be still and know that I am God. Growing still before God takes time, sometimes a long time. Remember this, silence does not mean God has ceased working. Imagine this scene, the base of Jesus' cross. There's a crowd, they are loud and chaotic. Jesus' followers experienced the silence of heaven there. Their worst nightmare became reality. Jesus was dead. But God was still working. Redemption, forgiveness, healing, grace, it all came despite the silence. God was God at work. God has worked in the past. God is working now. God is working now. He is for you. Friends, I trust that that's your, what you will experience and that will be your life story today and in the chapter you're planning to write tomorrow. God's grace and peace be with you.